0: Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host.
1: I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy.
0: Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. You are listening to the best of Sports Business Radio as we take the week off for spring break. In this week's show, in segment two, you're going to hear my conversation from the past with Super Agent David Falk, who represented Michael Jordan in his heyday. Falk also works with Mike Krzyzewski, the coach of Duke, and many others. Really one of the first agents to help his clients brand themselves, do endorsement deals. Very interesting, enlightening conversation with Agent David Falk. That's coming up in segment two. In segments three and four, Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and the general manager of the Super Bowl champion New Orleans Saints. I had a chance to catch up with Mickey Loomis following the Saints Super Bowl victory over Indianapolis. One of the brightest minds in the NFL, named the NFL executive of the year, and a guy who pulled all the right strings to help build a Super Bowl champion in New Orleans. That conversation coming up in segments three and four. Couple of other notes. Visit my sports business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. You can become our Facebook friend or follow me via Twitter. My handle on Twitter is at SB Radio. You can link to our Facebook page from my blog at sportsbusinessradio.com. Tiger Woods granted his first interviews last weekend with ESPN and the Golf Channel. I'm going to give you my thoughts on how he did and how it might affect his endorsements and the business of Tiger Woods moving forward on next week's show. If you filled out a tournament bracket and you're playing the Sports Business Radio March Madness Challenge, go to sportsbusinessradio.com. You can link to that bracket. Not doing so hot. I do have Kentucky winning it all. I'm trying to stay in front of Nathan and Bobby. I'm not doing that right now. And that's my main goal, but uh, it's going to be an interesting weekend in the tournament. And uh, we're heading towards the Final Four. It's been a thrilling tournament so far. If you missed my conversation with Greg Shaheen, the man who runs March Madness, you can go on to sportsbusinessradio.com and listen to that conversation from last week's show. Enjoy the best of sports business radio. David Falk, coming up. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Sports business curriculum taught by industry experts and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the Center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center, passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. My guest is super sports agent David Falk. He's represented more number one picks in the NBA draft than any other agent. He's best known as the visionary who teamed with Michael Jordan to revolutionize the way athletes are marketed. In addition to representing Jordan, Falk's client list also includes Patrick Ewing, James Worthy, former Georgetown basketball coach John Thompson, and current Duke basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski. Falk recently donated $5 million to his alma mater, Syracuse University, to kickstart the school's sports management program. He has a new book out called The Bald Truth, Secrets of Success from the Locker Room to the Boardroom, which is a business book that relates his experiences in the sports business world into general business lessons. David, thank you for joining us this week on Sports Business Radio. My pleasure. So I've enjoyed reading your book, The Bold Truth. And in your book, you discuss your path to becoming the success you are today. Many people know you as the man who's made millions representing the likes of Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing. But people may not realize that you started off at the bottom as an unpaid intern. What led you to want to become a sports agent so badly that you were willing to start off as an unpaid intern?
2: Well, I was one of those, I guess, rare people that knew at an early age What I wanted to do. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it, but I really, uh, I always wanted to be a lawyer, uh, and I always had a very um, strong love for sports. And When I was in college at Syracuse, uh, I got very close to a number of the basketball players, and uh, one of them was one of my really close friends, Greg Coles. Uh, He was like the sixth leading scorer in the country in our class, and by the time I became a senior, uh, and he was coming out and got drafted, I realized I didn't have a clue what I have to do to do the business. I went to law school and and, um, uh, I started meeting people and networking uh, really after my first year. And so when the opportunity came along um, uh, at at ProServe to work with Donald Dell, um, they weren't hiring people with my background and and, uh, I just offered to work for free. I didn't start at the bottom. I probably started below the bottom.
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny you talk about it. they weren't hiring people with my background. It's so hard for a lot of people to get a job today in sports because you have to have experience to get that job, right?
2: Well absolutely the business has changed so dramatically. When I started, uh, it was maybe the first decade, if you will, of, of um of, of sports being a business, of, uh, being a manager, Mark McCormick really invented the business in the late sixties. And um you know, when I started off, I was more of a generalist. I did, I did a little bit of everything. I negotiated contracts. I did marketing deals. I wrote contracts. I did research. And today, you know, to, to get a job, you really have to be a specialist in an area. You have to be in marketing or sales or IT or, you know, event, event management. It's really – you. Could, I would never hire someone with my background because the business becomes so much more specialized.
0: Interesting. Uh, one of the things I noted about you when you're doing when I was doing the research for this interview, you donated five million dollars to your alma mater, Syracuse, to kickstart the school's sports management program. What led you to make this major contribution? I mean, that's a big contribution.
2: Well, as I mentioned in my book, my mother was a teacher, Pearl Falk, and she was you know, the the most important um, influence in my life. And um, I think I've always had a little bit of a teaching instinct in me. And I've you know I've done guest lecturing quite a bit. And, uh, you know, the chancellor, Nancy Cantor, had approached me and thought that um, it would be a great way to have a program that was sort of experiential, where you wouldn't just be teaching about academics, but you could have people, you know, I could bring in people from the field that could give, you know, a hands-on uh, view to the students of what the industry is. And we've assembled a board, a very, very uh, successful board. Rick Burton, who used to be the head of the program at the University of Oregon, is on my board. And, Brandon Steiner, who owns a collectibles business on the board. I have Art Monk, who's a Hall of Fame football client on on our board. And there's some tremendous people on the board that um, that can lend the students, um, you know, a really practical view of of, w- of where the business is and what it takes to get in. And I absolutely love, you know, I absolutely love it. I had a, you know, I met my wife at Syracuse. My younger daughter goes to Syracuse, so it's uh, well, I've never represented a player from Syracuse, which is sort of an irony. I have a very huh. strong fondness. You know, from my experience at the school, and it's, uh, and it's been a great reward for me to spend time with the students.
0: You're best known as the person behind Michael Jordan's off-the-court successes. Uh, share with us the story about how you and Michael Jordan met and how he became a client of yours, if you would.
2: Well, what happened was, um, you know, the firm I worked for was called ProServe, and the two senior people, Donald Dell and Frank Grego, had had a long-term relationship with, with Coach Smith. Frank actually went to the University of North Carolina as a Moorhead Scholar. And uh, before I joined the firm, they'd represented uh, early players like George Carls, the coach of Denver now, and Dennis Weisick and Bobby Jones. And uh, Dean would screen all the agents. And uh, when Michael came out in 1984 with Sam Perkins, uh, there had been actually six groups during his tenure that had represented Carolina players. He invited them all in, gave them each an hour. Um, And, you know, uh, I wouldn't say that I was the... the, um, you know, the, the deal breaker in that kind of a thing. I think you know the relationship between Dean and, and Donald Dell was very important. but once Michael became a client, I was running basketball at the time and we got very close and uh, you know he had known of my relationship with you know earlier clients like Phil Ford and James Worthy and Dudley Bradley and Michael Corn who I'd spent you know a lot of my time with. and so he actually knew quite a bit about our operation. It wasn't like we came in and, and dazzled him. I think he was just comfortable that we had you know done a really good job you know, managing the predecessors at, at Carolina.
0: One of the things I love about your book is the insight that you share, The Bold Truth by David Falk. It's in bookstores now. Uh, the part of your book that I just found fascinating was where you talked about Michael Jordan's shoe deals, and you talked about how he was really an Adidas guy, and Nike was uh, a distant third behind Adidas and Converse, to the point where you even had to plead with his parents to get him on a plane to come out to Nike's presentation. Now, you know, Michael Jordan and Nike are synonymous. Maybe you can talk a little bit to our listeners about how that all came together. And really, I believe that that relationship with Nike, because they were willing to spend so much money on advertising and make Michael Jordan bigger than life, I think that was the foundation for his other deals.
2: No question. I think the Nike deal jump started his market. No, no pun intended. You know, jump started his marketing success. But you know, it's hard for young people today to understand what the world looked like in 1984. In 1984. You know the stars in the NBA were were obviously Magic and, and Bird, um, Dr. J. None of those players had their own shoes. Um, you know they all they all were just simply endorsers. You know for for other companies. And um, you know I had worked with a lot of tennis players. I worked with Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith. Uh, and tennis players and golfers routinely had their own products. They had their own tennis rackets, golf clubs, shoes, clothes. And so when, uh, two years before Michael came out, you know, I had represented James Worthy, and I had negotiated the largest true deal in the history of the NBA for, for James when he was a rookie uh, with New Balance. He was the only player they had. And so there had been an evolution in the business. Um, and so when Michael finally came out in 84, uh, and I went to see him at the Olympics and realized that he was a man among boys at the Olympics in Los Angeles in, in 1984, he was you know, amongst you know Patrick Ewing and... You know, Chris Mullen, just a, Sam Perkins, a whole host of great players. He just, in international stars, he just stood out. He it was like, it was like a pro player play against high school kids. And while no one knew how great he'd be as a player, it was obvious that he was going to be a really exciting player. And so when we went to the shoe companies for Michael. I told them all, we're not going to make offers. You know, we want to know what can you do to promote, to promote this man. Um, and most of them thought I was crazy, and they said, well, Dave, what are you going to promote him? We're going to just sign him. You know, we're going to sign him and give him free product, and um, you know, he'll join our staff." In fact, Converse, we had our meeting with Converse, which is ironically owned by Nike now. Um, you know, they said we have 66 executives at the company, six foot six and over, <laughs> and we're you know we're going to treat you just like all the other you know great players we have. And Michael's father, James, had been to several of the meetings. Said. Uh, gosh, don't you guys have any new creative ideas? And they looked at him like, like, what, are you kidding me? Like, why do we need to be creative? This is not really complicated. Just sign the deal and, and lace up the shoes. And so Nike was at a point where they really were not established in basketball. They were in basketball, but they weren't really a, a major factor like they are today. Uh, and I had had an outstanding relationship with Phil and Rob Strasser in the early days when the company was very small and entrepreneurial. I'm a, a great admirer of Phil's. And, um, you know, we basically brought them, Jordan, because I thought it was the best fit. You know, I thought that they needed him the most. They would be the most hungry. They'd be the most entrepreneurial. They'd be the most creative and, and, you know, all those. and And there were all of those things and more.
0: My guest is longtime sports agent David Falk. He is the author of a new book called The Bald Truth, Secrets of Success from the Locker Room to the Boardroom. It is a fantastic book that you absolutely have to go out and read. You know, I thought my favorite chapter in the whole book was chapter four. It's entitled See the Whole Court. And the reason I enjoyed this chapter so much was because the insight you shared in the negotiations and things like that with your clients. But you talk, you have one phrase that just hit me and it says, don't just see what is happening anticipate what's happening we talk about that in the sports world so much how the game slows down for the great players and they can see plays before they happen but we don't really talk about it that much in the business world and it makes total sense you saw kind of the game before it was happening 25 30 years ago with Michael Jordan and as you just said you know now who's going to take that to the next level
2: well, you know, I think, you know, I'm a lawyer, and lawyers spend a lot of time, Brian, looking at precedents, things that happened in the past, sometimes hundreds of years ago, as a guideline to, to how decisions are made. But in business, you know, when you spend a lot of time looking in your rearview mirror, you know, you, you're going to get into an accident. you got, you got to be looking in front of you and trying to understand, like, I mean, a great race car driver's got to see, you know, hundreds of yards ahead of him and, and decide when he's going to take the turn. And I think when you're managing people... You've got to get a sense of where, you know, where the trends are going, not where they've been, because they change so quickly. I mean, I'll give you a great story. You know, when when we came out with the first Air Jordans in 1985, they were black and red. People said they were really ugly, but they sold 130 million dollars worth of shoes, which is more than every other shoe company that did basketball. They outsold, you know, Converse and Adidas. It was unbelievable. So every company for year two came out with a black and red shoe. And we sat down with, you know, with Tinker, Hatfield, the designers of Nike, and we decided, we sort of knew that was going to happen. And we came up with an all-white shoe for year two. So when everyone said, hey, we know what's cool, here's a black and red shoe, we were saying, hey, that's not cool anymore. What's cool now is white. (laughs) And and I think that, you know, I think, you know, particularly in fashion, but business trends change so quickly. You know, in the age of technology, you know, things are changing so quickly. That if you can't, you know, sort of what Bill Gates wrote when he wrote the book, The Road Ahead. If you can't anticipate where it's going, you're going to get left behind.
0: If you could move to a model more like the NFL where signing bonuses are guaranteed but the contracts aren't guaranteed, would you be in favor of such a move? And he said, absolutely, but I don't think the players and the Players Association would ever go for that. Do you think that we may at least see uh, something happen where the contracts are – Shorter guaranteed contracts than they are now. I mean, we've got we went from seven and six to what six and five now. Exactly.
2: I mean, again, I think you know you can't look at the thing in the broad brush, Brian. You know, if you're the Lakers, you'd never want to have a situation where you shorten the contract because you could risk losing Kobe Bryant. I mean, you know, for the stars, you you want to have longer contracts. I mean, you could want to sign those guys up as long as you can because you don't want to lose them. If Cleveland right now could offer LeBron James ten years and everyone else could offer him five years, they would because, you know, that's all the rumors that he may go to New York or New Jersey or whatever. I mean, he's the most—he's the foundation of the team. And so when you have players at that ilk, you don't want to lose them.
0: All right, last question for you. You talk about negotiations in your book in great detail. You've negotiated with other NBA GMs, shoe executives. Uh, you've talked to college coaches about trying to convince them to let you recruit the player to sign them as a client. Who's the toughest person? that you've ever negotiated with?
2: You know, it's a, almost an impossible question to answer. I mean, people are tough for different reasons. People are tough because they're smart, like a Jerry Reinsdorf, I think I think at basketball, one of the toughest guys was a, was a gentleman who used to own the San Antonio Spurs named Angelo DeRosas. He was in a very small market, very, very bright guy. And he came up with a really ingenious system where he would give all the players, whether they're stars like Girvin, bonuses based on how many games the team won. Took away individual incentives and said, "Look, if we're successful, we're all going to make more money." Um, and I think that was really, a, really a bright idea. There are people that are tough because they're stubborn. You know, uh, I think there are people that, you know that make mistakes and, and, and lose players, um, and, and I think they're all tough in different ways. But at the end of the day, what's great about the NBA is that it's so small. There's only 30 teams and 450 players you have to deal with the same people over and over again and the point i try to make in the book is that it's not in the long term you don't win anything by being tough you may you may win a battle you know here and there but you know you want to win the championship and to win the championship no team wins 82 games you got to lose a few along the way you got to win the key ones and that's the same thing in negotiations you know it doesn't it doesn't pay to be tough you want, you want to be effective
0: Well, David Falk, he is the author of The Bald Truth, Secrets of Success from the Locker Room to the Boardroom. It's in bookstores now or on Amazon.com. Tremendous book. Check it out. David, I've had this show on the air for five years. I've wanted to have you on for five years, so I'm glad that we finally got to connect.
2: Well, I really enjoy it. Let's, Let's not wait another five years before we do it again.
0: That sounds great. Thank you very much for your time this week. My pleasure. Guests appearing during our Sports Sense segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses. Morton's the Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. For the Morton's nearest you, go online to mortons.com. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is NBA Commissioner David Stern. I thought you did a wonderful job of handling the game ball situation. You listened to your players and the owners, and ultimately, I thought you got it right. What did you learn from that experience?
2: It probably pays to go the extra step to build a consensus, even though you don't think there's any other view that makes sense.
0: My guest is Jack Nicholas. What are the main lessons the game of golf can teach us if we pay close enough attention?
1: You develop relationships with people. I think you play 18 holes of golf with somebody, you get to know them pretty well.
0: We're joined by Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the BCS. What we want is for the best two
2: teams to play in the championship game. Beyond that, I'm not sure it's really fair to say what's good for the BCS or or what's bad for the BCS.
0: Follow us at sportsbusinessradio.com and on Twitter at SB Radio. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the Super Bowl champion, New Orleans Saints. Mickey, thanks for joining us this week on Sports Business Radio.
1: Thank you, uh, uh, Brian. Pleasure to be with you guys.
0: So congratulations on winning Super Bowl 44 in Miami. As someone who's seen the state of Louisiana, the city of New Orleans, go through so much adversity since Hurricane Katrina, what does this championship mean to the people of that region?
1: Well you know that's a good question, and a lot of people have tried to uh, uh you know put into words you know what that is and I'm probably the least qualified person to uh to describe it because I've only been here for ten years but you know we've got a we've got a a group of fans that have supported this team for forty three years and uh uh you know this is their first championship and i know you know i know that um uh, it means an awful lot to them uh you know the state of our city is is uh I would call it euphoric right now. (laughs) Obviously, we've had the Super Bowl and then Mardi Gras, and so it's been a celebration that has lasted for the last, uh, you know, 10 or 11 days, and and I know that uh – that uh you know people here are still uh, still really excited about about uh win the super bowl you know <laughs> i've seen mardi gras be, been referred to as lombardi gras <laughs> um, and so uh, you know i think that tells you a little bit about what uh, what our fans are, are going through
0: did you ever allow yourself to kind of dream this is what could it look like if we won the super bowl how crazy would this city go
1: well, you know, I've been here since 2000, and, you know, my first year here, we won we won the division, won the first uh, playoff game in, in the uh, history of the franchise, and so we got a taste of it then, on how excited the city was, and, uh, you know, we, we've had good teams in the past that just haven't got, gotten quite over the hump. In 2006, you know, after, our, uh, our, you know, in 05, we went through Hurricane Katrina, and we're, the team was displaced. We went through a 3-13 and season. Which is, very, you know, very difficult on our organization and on our fans just because of the circumstances. And then in 06, we, you know, made it to the NFC Championship game and lost to the Chicago Bears. And, uh, you know, I, I think our city and, and and our region was in a state of euphoria over that. Uh, simply, uh, not just because of of the success of the team, but after coming off such a traumatic event as Hurricane Katrina, and and then, uh, you know, obviously this year uh you know getting all the way to the super bowl and then to win it was just uh you know an incredible experience for all of us
0: You know, there was talk after Hurricane Katrina that owner Tom Benson may move the team because the region would no longer be able to financially support an NFL team. I know the Saints have since made a commitment to remain in New Orleans for years to come. But, you know, the media reports coming out of New Orleans as far as how the city is doing with the rebuilding efforts, we don't see them as much as we did right after the hurricane. Give us an update. How, in your perspective, how are the rebuilding efforts coming along there?
1: Yeah, you know, a couple of things. First of all, I want to address the first part of uh, your question to lead into it. You know, the the speculation that the team was, was going to or wanted to move all came from the media. It never came from the club itself or the mm-hmm. owner. And so, you know, I continue to read that, and it's it's a mischaracterization of, of uh, you know, the intention was always to come back to New Orleans. The only question was, and, and this was a question for the first three or four months after the storm is, is the city going to be back? You know, are people right. going to come back to New Orleans? And you know, once that was established, uh, there was never ever any question that we were going to come back to uh, the city of New Orleans. You know, just that transition, whether there would be a place to play because the Superdome didn't look like it was going to be ready for a couple years immediately after the storm. So that, that's always a mischaracterization that that uh, the team was thinking about or seriously considering, you know, permanently relocating somewhere. Um, you know, the second part is is that Look, we've made a lot of progress in the last four years, but there's still uh, a lot of work to be done, particularly in the Ninth Ward um, and in in the Lakeview area here in in, uh, in our city. You know, if you're a tourist and you come here and you're going to the French Quarter or you're going to, to be downtown or uh, or in the Warehouse District or uptown, you, you're going to see. Um, you know uh, areas that are pretty much restored to what they were before the storm and in some cases even better but there are there are a couple of regions areas in in the, in and around new orleans that need uh need a lot of work yet and so um you know hopefully uh you know our super bowl win and and the attention that's been brought on our area will uh help spur additional work in those areas
0: well, I think I've said this for uh, the last few years on our show. Tom Benson deserves a lot of credit, and so do you and the organization for what you've done to help rebuild that community. I've seen what the Hornets have done as well, but you know, I've read all the stories about Drew Brees and Reggie Bush and some of your players who have really rolled up their sleeves and taken it personally to help rebuild that community. And you know, there's not a lot of teams that would do that, and I think uh, the fact that you built a team with – Guys that have such character is really a tribute to you and to Tom Benson.
1: Well, you know, thank you for that, uh, Brian. I, I think this I think our players do deserve a lot of credit. Um, it, you know, a lot of these guys weren't here during uh, Katrina weren't, and they came afterwards, and yet. Each guy that's come here has taken it upon himself to, to recognize that, that uh hey he can mean more to our community than, than uh than he would as a player in another city and so they've they've taken that to heart. They they go above and beyond um the call of duty in terms of uh you know, committing their time and their resources to you know, really worthy causes here, here in New Orleans, and and look, I think I think every team has guys has a lot have a lot of guys that do that. Um, but you know, in our city, given what what happened with Katrina, it's uh, it's even more meaningful.
0: I'm joined by Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and the general manager of the New Orleans Saints. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Mickey, uh, let's talk about how you built this football organization, and let's start back in 2006 with the hiring of Sean Payton. I was reading a story as I was preparing for this interview, and uh, I see that you came across a video of Sean Payton when he was a coach with the Cowboys. It was about a half an hour video. What did you see in that video that made you say, wow, this is a guy who's intriguing as a possibility for the next head coach of the Saints?
1: Well, Brian, you know one of the things that the league does is that they uh, they do interviews with with uh, a lot of assistant coaches around the league, assistant coaches that aspire to be head coaches, and it's it's basically a thirty minute videotaped interview. Um, you know the questions are pretty generic. You know they ask uh, you know each guy you know, basically the same questions, and and then uh, you know you get to view their answers. And and you know I don't I don't know that it was anything that he said specifically. It was more just about his presentation. Um, you know, I watched, I watched a bunch of those interviews, probably 30 of them when it was all said and done, 30 to 40 of them. And, you know, he jumped out at me as a guy that, that, hey, look, his presentation was excellent. And hey, this is a guy that I would listen to if I were a player and, and was hearing him, uh, hearing him speak. Um, you know, he had a few things in there that I liked in terms of the answer, the actual answers, but, uh, more than anything, it was just the presentation. So that got him on, um on our radar screen, Uh, and then, you know, you do due diligence, you call different people that he's worked with, and and on every occasion, you know, I got the A-plus recommendation, and so uh, it got to the point where, hey, look, I want to meet this guy, and he was uh, coaching in Dallas, and we were in San Antonio at the time, and so I asked him to uh, fly down from Dallas and meet me at the airport uh, in, in San Antonio, and we spent about two, two and a half hours together, you know, one evening, just real informally, and and uh, you know, I, I knew at that time that look, this guy would be an excellent candidate, and and would be just what we needed in New Orleans in terms of his energy and his vision for how he he wanted to uh, um, you know help build a team. It was very much in line with some of the philosophies that that uh, you know I thought were needed in our in our building and in our city, and and uh, you know, we went from there. Um, he came later to New Orleans and had, uh, you know, a two-day pretty extensive and intense interview, and, and um, luckily it was a great fit for both of us.
0: Mickey, every coach seems to have signature moments over the course of their career. I would bet when it's all said and done for Sean Payton, the decision to make an onside kick at the start of the second half of the Super Bowl is going to be one of the signature moments of his career. Did you know he was going to make that call? And if you didn't, what were you thinking when you saw that play uh, to begin the second half of the Super Bowl?
1: Well, you know, it's something an onside kick is something we talked about and he talked about during the course of the week. And we felt like uh, we had we had a good plan for that type of onside kick. And we felt like our chances of recovery were were really good. And so I don't know that we thought it was as risky as. Uh, you know, it's been portrayed to be obviously there's a risk there, but but we felt pretty good about our chances to recover a surprise onside kick in that circumstance. And and uh, I didn't know when he was going to use it. I knew that he planned on using it. Um, you know, the code name for that was ambush, and and uh, you know I knew he was going to use ambush at some point in the uh, in the game. And then during halftime, you know, I told our guys in the booth, "Hey, look, I, I would be willing to uh, bet we're going to come out with an onside kick." And uh, sure enough, we did, and and uh, we were lucky enough to recover it and score a touchdown off that possession, and you know, really was a key uh, key point in the game. And, and you know, Sean has always been the kind of coach that is trying to, you know, he's trying to do things to win the game, and as opposed to you know, not lose a game. And so, it didn't surprise me. He's, he's always been aggressive. You know, we go for it a lot on fourth down, and and we do some other things that that. Uh, you know, I think are aggressive uh, uh, moves during the course of a game. So that didn't surprise me at all.
0: So after hiring Sean Payton, you were able to land uh, Drew Brees as the quarterback. You know, and at the time, Brees was coming off a torn labrum. Some people thought he might not be able to regain the form that he had in San Diego. Walk us through how that all came together. I remember the Dolphins were also aggressively pursuing him as well. But how did he wind up in New Orleans?
1: Well, you know, first of all that, that uh you know, the injury that he had was was I don't know that I would call it unprecedented, but uh for a quarterback to have that type of injury, um, you know, it can be really devastating and, and there definitely was question as to whether or not he could come back from it. But, you know, after after talking to a number of uh doctors that are familiar with that surgery and familiar with that injury and including the doctor, uh, James Andrews who did the surgery himself, we we just felt like he could come back from it that the, uh, uh, the rehab time, you know, it might be one year. He might have been ready that first season, but if he wasn't, that it'd be a real good chance that he was going to be ready in year two. And so, you know, if you draft a quarterback, it's going to take two or three years for that guy to get uh, 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 to the point where he can play at his optimum level. And yet, here's a guy, Drew Brees, who had already proven in San Diego that he was going to be, uh, or that he was uh, uh, an excellent quarterback. So, we didn't feel like the risk was as great as as uh, uh, even even a draft pick. And so, you know, fortunately for us, it was just us and the Dolphins. And, and, you know, they made a decision to go another route, which was, you know, good for us. Uh, uh, but I'm not sure Drew wouldn't have come to New Orleans anyway because he had a great visit here. He had a connection with uh, Sean Payton. And, and uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways, Drew has said that this was really a higher calling
0: for him. More of my conversation with Mickey Loomis. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Now we continue my conversation with Mickey Loomis. Talk about Drew Brees' leadership. I mean, leadership isn't something you can really teach. You either have it or you don't, and he definitely has it and seems to be the leader of that team
1: well he he is he's a leader of our team in terms of performance certainly and and uh, you know off the field as well and you know he he's a very competitive individual and and he's a perfectionist and so uh, you know w- w- when you're the guy that's preparing the hardest it's it's uh it's tough for teammates not to follow you know it's tough for anybody um, you know on this team to get here before Drew and it's tough for uh, um for anybody to leave after he he leaves so um, he's an excellent leader just in, in the way he carries himself and the way he presents himself. And, and, and you know, the good thing for us is that he's both uh, a leader in terms of being vocal as well as a leader in terms of just his, uh, um, you know, the, the things that he does.
0: My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the New Orleans Saints. We've got a few minutes left. Mickey, uh, anytime you win a Super Bowl, it's hard to defend. You've got that target on your back. This year is going to be interesting, it would it would seem, for someone in your position, because it looks like we may have an uncapped season coming up. And I've tried to understand this. I'm hoping you can explain it a little bit better to myself and to our audience. I know that there are going to be some players who may have been unrestricted free agents in a normal year, but they're not going to be if there's an uncapped season explain that to us and how does that affect your job and what you have to do when you're looking at signing players
1: well you know what it means is that the players who are in uh year 4 and year 5 of their career um are going to be restricted free agents instead of unrestricted free agents if we don't have a new uh, uh you know agreement by the beginning of uh the league year which is I think March 5th um and so, you know, we've got some players in that category that otherwise would be unrestricted um and so they're not going to be as free to change teams as they would be otherwise. Although, you know, they can receive offers and and uh, uh sign offers with other teams, well, you know, we'll have in most cases we'll have a right of first refusal. Um so it remains to be seen how that ultimately affects us cuz I think we would have we would have an excellent uh 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 opportunity to sign these guys even if they were unrestricted you know we've got a good team and we've got uh players that want to be here and 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 obviously from our standpoint we've got a lot of guys that we want to be here so um ultimately i don't know what the difference would be um in terms of the makeup of our team but you know we've got a tough challenge ahead of us because you know it, it's hard to defend uh, a super bowl championship you know because of just what you said you've got the target on you everybody wants to beat you that helps to make their season And, uh, you know, we'll see how we handle it.
0: I wanted to ask you a few questions about your job. Uh, You attended the University of Oregon. You graduated as an accounting major. It seems like more and more the trend in sports is to hire GMs who have a financial background as opposed to former players. A friend of mine is Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets. He comes from a business background. Maybe you can talk about the importance in today's world, in your role, of having that understanding of the salary cap and finances and, and things of that nature.
1: Yeah, you know, for, you know, first of all, I did have an undergraduate degree in accounting, but you know, I went back to school and have a master's degree in, in uh, physical education and, and sports management. So, you know, I've got uh, a background that's a little diverse. You know, I spent... Uh, um, You know, I spent, uh, this is my 27th season in the NFL, I think it is, and and so I've been in the league for a long time. You know, I spent the first, uh, you know, 15 years in Seattle and uh, worked under a great general manager in in Mike McCormick and and then Tom Flores, who I got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, um, you know, great education from both of those guys who had been coaches. Uh, players first, then coaches, and then general managers in the league. And and so, you know, I consider myself to have a football background (laughs) as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, a business background. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you're a general manager, you're managing people and you're managing, um, uh, you know, the building much more so than anything, you know, real specific in terms of evaluations or players, contracts, or, you know, there's just so many different facets to it. And so um, you know I think like anything else is that you know when you when you're at the top of an organization you're managing good people you're you're looking to hire good people and you're looking to manage um, people and give them the opportunity to be successful in, in each of their specific fields and so I don't know how, that it's that important what your background is I think it's a lot more important what your experience and, and you know the education you get along the way and so you know, I don't know about the other sports, but I know in football, you know, we've got general managers that have been, you know, ex-scouts, ex-coaches, um, you know, some have playing background and some have business background and marketing background. So we've got all kinds of, of guys and, 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 and lots of uh, different examples of guys that have been successful. But I think the common thread is that they are they're very good at managing people.
0: I read a great story about you in the Eugene Register guard before the Super Bowl. And it talked about how you, lo- you knocked on a lot of doors before you got your first chance at pro sports with the Seattle Seahawks in the early 80s. We have a lot of students and people wanting to work in the sports world listening to this show. What advice would you give to people about you know knocking on those doors and making yourself stand out so you can get a job in the sports world?
1: Well, boy, that's a good question, and and uh, I don't know that I have a great answer for it because you know I think I think now um, different than than it was when I started is that I, I think there are more people that are looking to get into sports uh, now than there was you know twenty five years ago, right. twenty six years ago, uh, because then you know the the opportunity to to make a good living wasn't nearly as great. I mean, you were working for for uh, a lot less money than you could you could earn in in a lot of other sectors uh, in private industry. So, um, I think what I would say is this, is to just keep knocking on doors because eventually you'll get an opportunity and, and then you've got to be, uh, diligent enough and work hard enough to take advantage of it.
0: Something I've noticed this off season, Mike Shanahan in Washington, Pete Carroll in Seattle, they're executive VPs. They're in charge of the whole show, but they're also the head coaches. How hard is it to do both jobs?
1: Well, first of all, I, I don't I don't know that I agree with you because you know in, in Washington, Mike Shanahan has Bruce Allen as his general manager, and 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 Bruce has a, a world of experience right. and is right. an excellent general manager. He's been successful. He's uh, uh, been to the Super Bowl a number of times, and and uh, you know he knows what he's doing in this league. And so, you know, Mike's got a guy he can rely on pretty heavily. And in Pete, in Pete Carroll's case, you know, he's got uh, uh, personnel people. And he's got, uh, you know, President and Todd Lewicki and, and uh, personnel people in their building. So they're not really running the show in the sense that they're, that, you know, they're dictators. They've got good people that they can rely on uh, and use their expertise. Um, you know, I think there's, at the end of the day, there's there's several different structures that can be successful in the NFL. And, and uh, you know, that's certainly one of them when you have a head coach at the um uh, you know, as the final decision maker, and there are other examples and great examples when you have a general manager as the, as the uh, um, final decision maker, and then there's the examples of of teams that use you know uh, um, uh, three different guys that that are all uh, you know working in concert together. And I think at the end of the day, you have to work in concert with each each facet of uh, of an organization. Otherwise, you're not going to be successful.
0: Last question for you. I know you have a lot of friends and family in Oregon who are very proud of you. How often are you able to get back to the uh, Oregon area and visit family and friends? Well, you know, I,
1: I try to come back once a year, but it's been a couple of years since I've been back there. I do have a lot of friends and 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 family in oregon and and you know one of the great things about winning a super bowl is you get to hear from all of them um <laughs> uh, you know because they're, they're just so happy for you and, and so i've heard from a lot of people that i haven't heard from from a long time but i enjoy that i like that a lot and i know that i'll get back there uh either this spring or summer and uh you know hopefully i'll get to spend a week or two um and, and and you know revisit some friendships and, and revisit some areas that I want to see again. You know, I miss Oregon in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, I bet your friends and family want you to bring the Super Bowl trophy with you too, right? <laughs> I, might, I might have to do that. That'd be great. Well, Mickey, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I'm very, very happy for you that you guys won the Super Bowl, and uh, thanks for taking time with us this week on Sports Business Radio.
1: I appreciate it, Brian. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you very much. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. Every championship team has one thing in common, good coaching. And I want to be your coach, your media coach. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form New School Media Coaching. New School Media Coaching uses a fresh and interactive approach for educating our clients about dealing with today's media landscape. Whether you're an athlete, a coach, or a front office executive in the sports or business world, we'll prepare you for communications with the masses in today's social media world where everything is on the record. And just like any good coach, we'll help you practice your new skills and we'll be there to provide constructive feedback every step of the way. With a combined 40 years of experience, we're veteran coaches, but we use a new school approach. For an overview and a list of our services, visit newschoolmediacoaching.wordpress.com or email me, at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. A few quick sports business notes before we leave you this week. Joe Maurer, Minnesota Twins catcher, signs an eight-year, $184 million deal with the Twins. Twins moving into their new ballpark have added revenues. Starting in 2011, Mauer will make $23 million a season. The Golden State Warriors and their owner Chris Cohan has put the team up for sale. Oracle billionaire Larry Ellison has been mentioned as a leading candidate to purchase the team. Our last note of the week. Looks like Brian Winhorst of the Cleveland Plain Dealer is reporting that LeBron James may be close to an extension with Nike. His seven-year deal is set to expire in a few months and LeBron James says and I quote I don't plan on going anywhere maybe I already have an agreement. Now James who's going to likely have a new personal Nike logo soon because the current one features his number 23 and he's changing to number six implied his new deal will lead to double figure versions of his shoe. A lot of thank yous on our show this week. want to thank Nathan Roach, Bobby Courser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, Doug Zanger, and Brian Griggs. Our sponsors, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon and New School Media Coaching. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page. You can find us on iTunes. Go to the business news section, type in sports business radio, and you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast every week. Enjoy March Madness. I'm Brian Berger. We'll talk to you next week on Sports Business Radio.